Morning. Can you do me a favor? We're going to talk today about uh, building a body, and I thought it would be good for us to sit a little closer together. So there's no condemnation. Those are in Christ Jesus. But unless you have to leave a little early, let's see if we can come in a little closer. And if you want to leave a seat between you and somebody else, that's totally okay. Okay. Uh, but I think we'll just be able to connect a little bit closer as a body. Uh, and if you have to leave early, don't worry about sitting in the extremity. I also don't tend to be somebody who walks a lot. Uh, so I want to make sure I can uh, focus here. As you're doing that, I want to clarify for those of you who may have come here that my name is not Zach Poonin. Okay. Sometimes I get asked that. I also want to clarify my name is not Sandeep Poonin. Sometimes I get asked that too. Uh, I will tell you, I'm the oldest of four boys. Sandeep's actually number three. And the amazing thing about that scripture that says, the first will be last and the last will be first, has been so true in my family. I look up to my younger brother. I learned so much from him. Two of my younger brothers, Santosh, is now in Colorado. He started a church there. I learned so much from him. My third brother, Sandeep, as you know, he used to speak here. He's now started a church in Milpitas, uh, and I learned so much from him. Uh, and that is so true um, in the kingdom of God. There's no respecter of age. Uh, the last will be first. The first will be last. We're a very competitive family in terms of four boys. You can imagine that. And I know Sandeep, he's in Europe this week. He's probably going to be watching a copy of this video. So I can look in the camera and say, I can still beat you in basketball. <laughs> the sad news is he's, he beats me. So for those of you. But the, 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 the beauty of the, script, the scriptures is that when we focus on the word of God, great things happen. And that's what I hope happens this morning. Um, as many of you know, I, um, in my day life, I'm an executive at the fourth largest, fifth largest software company in the world, and I speak to tens of thousands of people in technology topics, hundreds of thousands after they watch my videos. But as I prepared for this morning, I had more fear and trembling and was on my knees because in the kingdom of God, unless you become a zero, everything that the world respects is vanities, it says in Ecclesiastic. Everything. The Lord picked fishermen. There's a reason why I think he picked Peter, James, John. They were fishermen. The scribes and Pharisees. If you were going to start a ministry, you'd probably go and pick people out of Bible school. The Bible school of that day was the Pharisees. He picked fishermen. Something mysterious about the way in which he can bring simple brothers and sisters. So that's hopefully what we're going to um, be talking about as we talk about a spiritual church. And my burden and my passion for this church, for my own life, for my family, and for all of us, is that we would truly understand today what it means to be a spiritual church. So let's open. I'm going to be using a number of scriptures. So like Andre said, if you get interrupted by a phone call, put your phone on vi uh, vibrate. And if you don't have the time to uh, do it, take a pencil and a paper and write down these passages of scripture. Because the word of God is like a two-edged sword, brothers and sisters. And we can't get enough of it. And uh, you can go and read them afterwards if you're not able to. Some of the, several of them will be up here. Um, and the first verse that is probably the most central verse when we can talk about being a spiritual church is John 7, verse 37 to 39. Now, it's interesting when you read this verse. I wanted you to read it. When we read scripture carefully, 
When we study it, we see so much that I've read scripture in the New Testament a number of times. But for the first time when I was on my knees this week, I noticed something about this verse I'd never noticed before. And that's what I encourage every one of you. Read scripture carefully, like the Bereans. They studied the scripture. They didn't trust what was being spoken to the pulpit. They went back and checked it with the scripture. It says in John chapter 7, verse 37, On the last day, the day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Now I looked up the scripture and the number of different times, and lots of the, the, the text here you have, if you have a Bible like mine, uh, in the New Testament, the red often is what Jesus spoke, and the black was the context around it. I looked up every single place where it talked about Jesus, and it said, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. There's five times where the Greek word actually is cry. Cry comes out of a cry of agony. Jesus cried out. One of those times was when he was on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second time was when he physically gave his spirit up. It says Jesus cried out. Two other times were uh, when he talked about he is the light of the world and he walks in darkness. Uh, and then the, the, the other time uh, was also when he was talking about you know, people knowing him. But the fifth time was this. So if Jesus were standing up here, you'd imagine all of his rest of his, his um, message would have been at a certain decibel level. But then he would have spoken up with a cry of agony. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, the Spirit said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit, so this is not him speaking anymore, of the Spirit whom those of whom believe in him would receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that's a beautiful passage, because when you think about the Scripture being fulfilled, the Scripture was actually Ezekiel 47. And we don't have time to go over it, but I'd encourage you to go back and read that vision that Ezekiel had of a man, he was taken into a place in a room, uh, and he, the water started to come into the room, and he noticed uh, the water, and it was measured the water, it went up to first to his ankles, then the water went up to his knees, then it says the water went up to his loins, and then he was transported almost into a river of water, it went up to his neck. And then finally it says the water got so deep he had to swim in it. And then he was brought back to the bank and he saw this river. That is the picture of a spirit-filled church. Now sadly, most of Christianity, sadly, most of Christianity is misunderstood what it means to be spirit-filled. A lot of Christians think that you're born again and you're spirit-filled at the time you're born again. And we're going to study scripture as we look at what it is. And there are many others on the other extreme of it who've taken this to a very extreme where you have all kinds of in the spirit, rolling in the spirit, laughing in the spirit, you know. And it's not to say that healing ministries and things of those kinds, but you have two extremes here uh, where we've met the, most of Christianity today has misunderstood what it means to be filled with the spirit. So what should we do? Like the Bereans, what should we do? We'll go back to the Word of God. That's the definitive, this is the owner's manual. So let's do that. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The definitive sign that we know we are spirit-filled. First in our own uh, bodies and then also as it relates to our family in the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it doesn't matter if you're living a life where you feel your Holy Spirit experience was the first time you were born again. And you're living the rest of your life and it's up and down, you're defeated and defeated, you're missing that power. It's time to go back to that river. If you have misunderstood all of these gifts of the Spirit, I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe there is a place for healing. But the most important thing is power. Most important thing is power. But it's been misunderstood by the charismatics perhaps, a lot of televangelists. And we come back to where it's power. And it's amazing when we think about that picture of water uh, that Jesus used. And John, there's three different illustrations of water uh, that, that Jesus uses in, in, the, in the book of John. The first is actually John chapter 3, where he talks to Nicodemus and he says, you need to be born of water. And that's talking about the individual experience where like a cup, we're able to be born of water, we repent, uh, and we're sanctified. Then in John chapter 4, Jesus talks about this to the Samaritan woman and uses the picture of a well of water. And I see that as a picture of where a well is much larger, larger than just a cup that can um, you know, serve just me. It actually can help the entire family, potentially a couple of different families. But it's a very different description in John chapter 7 where he talks about a river. And most people are content with that cup. Some people have faith for a well. I want every one of us to have faith for that river. And that's what the Lord can do in this church. But why is it that most Christians don't experience this? They're very content living a defeated life. They don't realize that the Lord's calling them to this higher river. They're content with that cup or they're content with a well. They never experience the river. Their life is consistently ups and downs or periods of dryness. Here's a simple game. Let's go back to the owner's manual. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Simple. These are all, when I read these verses, I say, Lord, you have put the answers to all of my questions in your word. I just need to search for them. I need to read it more carefully. I want to hear you crying out to me, Lord, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Again, we've read these verses a number of different times. We don't see them for their simplicity. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who do what? We don't ask. We don't ask. It's just simple. So we think we're very happy with the cup or the well. We are not on our knees and say, Lord, my life is dry. I feel defeated. I need that higher calling. We don't ask. So those ask, much will be received. And that's exactly what the... Now in the Old Testament, there were pictures of the Spirit. And I want to contrast for you what the difference was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a picture of, of, of the Holy Spirit as a fire. We see that in Exodus 3, when, when Moses saw the burning bush. And that's a picture of how our life can be consumed by fire. That's an individual experience, and a life can be consumed by fire. The second is a picture of the tabernacle uh, in Exodus 25 and, 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 and again in Exodus 40 where it's, it talks about the, the spirit dwelt on top of the tabernacle. But there's no evidence in the, in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit filled people. As a result, they left, lived defeated lives. 
They bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all my iniquities. Paul, David could write after he had sinned. But he never had the Holy Spirit filling them. So I, I love illustrations, so I brought something here to give you a simple illustration of what this might have been like in the uh, Old Testament versus the New Testament. So bear with me while I get this up. Okay, so here is a, a, a jug of water. And this represented perhaps how a lot of the, the Old Testament people experienced the, the uh, Holy Spirit dwelling on top of them. The water was poured, and in Corinthians it actually talks about a veil that separated them from Paul. So Moses had to go up to Sinai, and the veil separated them from actually knowing God in an intimate fashion. But they experienced the, the uh, Holy Spirit over them. Okay? This is the difference of being over them. But then when Jesus came, and as we're anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what happened in Acts chapter 2. It fills us. It fills us. Fills us. And then we think we're dry again. We can go back to being filled. So this is the promise. But most often, Christians are very comfortable with the fact the Holy Spirit can dwell on top of them. They've missed out on that filling. And that's what I want to hopefully encourage, motivate for every one of you. That's what I seek for my life. That every day of my life, um, we can be filled with that fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's plenty of evidence of this. Again, I'm not going to go into every single, but I want to show you a number of very quick scriptures that talked about the filling experience in Acts chapter We've been working through Acts chapter 2. Obviously, we know Acts chapter 2, where it talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They were one mind. Uh, and then again, Acts chapter 6. You'd expect if this was one experience, why does it talk again several times in the books of Acts of that filling experience? In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, in selecting the seven, there were supposed to be seven that were going to, to help the widows. It talks, when selecting the seven, find seven who, could, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit and wisdom, so we could put them in charge of this task. Again, in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, I just want to pick different experiences through that period of time. It wasn't a one-time experience, it was a continuous in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it talks about one of those seven, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently in heaven. This is just before he was being stoned and becoming one of the first martyrs. Acts chapter 11, verse 24, being, for he, this is now talking about Barnabas, was a good man, and again, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were being brought to the Lord. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it talks here about Peter. When Peter and John, uh, right after the, uh, the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, talked to the people, rulers and elders. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says again, And when they prayed, the place that they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, a different experience from Acts chapter 2. Again, number, number different times you see through the book of Acts. It wasn't just Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 9, verse 17 where it talks about the, the conversion experience of Saul. Um, God sent this man named Ananias. He entered the house and after laying his hands on the, on the man named Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus apparently appealed to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so it may regain your sight and you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 13 verse 9. 
This is again the same Paul now. Saul's become Paul. Saul, again, now he's in Cyprus. Saul, who was probably known as Paul, was filled with this Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him as he was rebuking the magician uh, in, in, uh, in Cyprus. So we've read many of these as we've studied the book of Acts. But the most important thing here is for us to know that it is a continuous filling. Ephesians 5.18, we all know this verse extremely well. Again, but when we read this carefully, when we read carefully, it actually says in the little tra- literal translation for Ephesians 5.18, be being filled with the Spirit. Do not get drink with wine, for that is dissipation. But the actual phrase there says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That talks about the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. It's a continuous experience. And that's what the Lord's promised. But again, for most of Christendom, they miss this. Because they think it's either a one-time experience, or they've gotten deceived by so much of the distraction uh, of the gifts, or the perceived distraction of the gifts, they miss the power. And that's what the Lord wants to show us. So as this veil gets removed, and as we experience that, I want to talk about four different ways in which we can, as individuals, again, we're talking about three different types of areas. Affecting ourselves, that's the cup. Our families, that's the well. And the, and the, the body of Christ the Lord's given us, or the community, we can have an impact, and that's the river. And it all starts, number one, the number one most important thing, I believe, is humility. It's the most important thing the Lord seeks from us. I've had a number of people who've come to us elders, and, and pastors and said, you know, what's the vision for, the, for abundant life in this new season? Where are you going? You know, as we know, there's been changes and uh, stuff the last, you know, year, year and a half, last four or five years. And I say, you know, it's amazing when I study the scriptures and I think about the life of Jesus. Because again, all of the Holy Spirit does is points us to Jesus. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, point us to Jesus. I want to become more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. So I look at the life of Jesus, and if I knew that at age 30, I had three and a half years to serve. Three and a half years, that's all I had to serve. That's what Jesus, he, he had. And you have to give your first sermon, okay? You'd expect to get the whole crowd together. Let me talk about the vision of my ministry. I've only got three and a half years left. I want to talk to you about the vision of what we're trying to get done. The mission statement, that's the corporate world that I live in. Believe me, I do have mission and vision statements for my life at VMware. It's important. But as heaven is from the earth, so are my ways, are your from your ways, right? I said, we've got to throw out everything we see in the corporate world as we come to uh, understand what Jesus had. Anyone know what was the first words, he, I mean, the first words he talked about is, thou shalt not live by bread alone. But if you go to Matthew 5 verse 3, we all know the, the famous Sermon on the Mount. Anybody know what the first words were that he preached about as he began his, 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 his uh, ministry? Blessed are the who? The poor in spirit. This wasn't, let me tell you the mission statement of what I'm going to get done in the three and a half years. He said, listen, the most important thing is humility. You want the kingdom of heaven, the most important thing is humility. We'll figure out, and it turns out Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is probably the best mission statement you could write or you could think about for any ministry. It's called now the Sermon on the Mount. But it started with being poor in spirit. So I tell us, brothers and sisters, 
Let's get back on our knees. Let's pray. Let's be poor in spirit. And the Lord's going to guide us. That's exactly what we're going to do at Abundant Life. When we stay humble on our knees, when we're poor in spirit, all of the fanciful vision and so on, those things just come automatically. It comes because we reflect the life of Jesus inside. And that's what the Lord wants to do with every one of us. So think about that in your own home. Poor in spirits, the most important thing. So the Lord seeks from us that, that level of humility. And you know, unfortunately, in the Silicon Valley, that's hard to find, as we know, right? We live among a Silicon Valley that is full of the brightest people on this earth, probably some of the wealthiest people on this earth, too. Okay? Um, there's only, I think, 3 or 4% of the Silicon Valley that actually believes in God. So it's probably one of the most heathen areas in terms of... Um, and there's a reason why, you know, for most often, for the wise and the intelligent and for the rich, it's hard to find this. Jesus actually talks about it. We all know this, right? Matthew 11, verse 25. One of my favorite verses. Because none of us can say we're not wise or intelligent. Silicon Valley, everyone here thinks they're wise and intelligent. We think we're smarter than everybody in the world. But here's a verse. Matthew 11, verse 25. I praise you, Father. Heaven of earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. And you've revealed them to who? To infants, to babes. Another verse, Matthew um, 19, verse 23 and 24. That's the wise and intelligent. Let's talk about the rich and the famous. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I said to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, rich doesn't mean just wealth. It could be rich. You could feel you're rich in your looks. You're good looking. You're rich in anything. I'm proud of my health. Anything that you feel you're rich in. It's not to say that if you're wise and intelligent or you're rich in anything, uh, whether it's your wallet or your, um, that the Lord can't use you. But what he's looking for is a humble heart. You can have a smart head, but the most important thing is where's your heart. When I think about the disciples that were picked, to me there's a lesson. Eleven of them, one of them obviously went astray. The bulk of them were fishermen. Again, like I said, if you're going to pick uh, the eleven people you're going to work with, you go and recruit them with a resume. They'd have the best Bible school degrees. You'd see what they've done before. But the mind of Jesus was to pick fishermen. And the, the person who actually had the most impact came later. He was a smart person. Make no mistake, Paul was an incredibly smart person. He was a Pharisee. But he had to go through a detox program, as we know. Right? right? He had to be blinded. He had to be blinded. And we saw what happened. When he was blinded and he was humbled. And we know the number of different times where, where Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners. The number of different times we see in the, in the... But when he had been cleansed of his pride, when he'd been cleansed of all that spiritual, spiritual religiosity, so to speak, the Lord could use him in a special way to write the bulk of what's in this New Testament. So if you're a smart person, if you've got anything that you're proud of, whether it's submit that to the Lord, the Lord can use it if you're humble. But you have to get to the point in your knees where you realize that you are the least in the kingdom of heaven. The least. If you try to drag in much of your stuff, 
As I became an elder here, some, some, uh, um, some people came and asked me, they said, you know, you've had a talented education, you went to Harvard Business School as an MBA, what would you do if you had a business school case study? And many of you know who've been to business schools, one of the ways in which they teach and learn is through case studies. What would you do if you had a case study that said abundant life? You know what I said? I'd throw it in the trash bin. It's exactly about what the Lord would do. Because as my ways are from your ways, so is the heaven is the earth. So the Lord's given me a gift that I can use in the corporate world. That's good. I first submitted completely to the kingdom. Completely on my hands and on my knees. Humility. And then the Lord can use you. So to everyone in the Silicon Valley, we're probably some of the most talented people in the world. We can learn a ton from some of those humble people. One of the things that keeps me extremely on my knees is almost once a year, I grew up in India, and I'll talk a little bit about that a little later, uh, and I go in fellowship with some of the saints uh, where I grew up, and I am so thankful the Lord keeps me close to my roots. What I've been so thankful about abundant life, when I first came here in 1999, you could be sitting on one side next to somebody who is just out of jail, and the other side next to a CEO. And we're one body in Christ. There is no difference in socioeconomic, <laughs> ethnic. In fact, there's a better chance that the person is out of jail because of these verses. The rich young ruler is probably going to glory in their identity that they find in the world. And that's what we need to continue. So humility is the, the, the most important thing. We'll talk about that a little later. Pride comes before fall, brothers and sisters. Number of different times where I say, Lord... When you bring something in my life that can humble me, it's for a reason. It's for a reason. And I've found that my own life, the most that I've learned have been the times where I've been shattered and bruised and humbled and, and, and I feel like there's, I'm, I'm depressed or I'm down about something. The Lord says, that's exactly where I need you to be. And now I can use you. The second most uh, the mark of a, of a spiritual church is that there's love. It's a tremendous amount of love. When we see uh, the, the picture of God as a father, as we heard last Sunday, we've been hearing the last few Sundays about changing the self-life or the Christ life two Sundays ago. And last Sunday we heard on Father's Day about what it means to sit on the lap of daddy. Right? Abba, father, is daddy. Sit on the lap of And we understand that unconditionally our God loves us. It's very important that every one of us is secure in that love. Because it starts there. We're going to talk about holiness and sin next. But it has to start with the fact that we are secure in God's love. And that we know that irrespective of what happens, He loves us. And then our response. If we knew that our dad loved us so much. Our mom loved us so much. Our parents loved us so much. As we grow older, what do we want to do? We want to make them proud. Right? We want to honor them. We want them to feel like all that they've invested in our life, we can give back some to, right? And that needs to be our attitude. Our attitude shouldn't be, Lord, come into my life because I just like to kind of, you know, sneak into heaven through the skin of my teeth. I get to heaven and, Jesus, and God says, well, I'm glad you got here. Right? Instead, I'd love for God to be able to say, just like he said to Jesus, well done, my begotten son, my begotten daughter. And it's not about works, but it's about that life of constant purity from stead from blind. And that's why he used the picture of a, of a light bulb that gets brighter and brighter and brighter. 
So that's the love that we need for Christ, where, Lord, you gave up so much for me on that cross. You died for me. I deserve nothing. As a small token of my gratitude, I want to give you not the worst of my life, not the dregs of my life, not when I'm 55 or 65 and I'm retired, and I've spent my entire life wasted on myself and my selfish needs. I want to give the best of my years to you. I want to, I want to dedicate my family to you so that they would know every child that you've given me would know you at an early age, that you would build a hedge of protection on them, that they would understand what it means to be disciples at an early age. And then for the flock that he's given us here at Abundant Life, that every one of you would not just know Jesus as a personal savior, but would understand what it means to live the spiritual life where we can go from victory to victory to victory. And then we find that each of us will have a place in that body. So, and then the third part of love, obviously, is loving one another. So understand that the, the Lord loves us. We're, we're completely secure in that, irrespective of the ups and downs. We are able to express our love back. And then our love for, for each other is unconditional. There are points in time where we have to be firm. But no one should be able to, to, to doubt the fact. I don't doubt the fact that the person who loved me, if it's a coach or my parents, if they're correcting me, they've done it in love. So love... Is the, and being rooted and grounded, the second mark of a spirit-filled person and a spirit-filled body. Now, once we've covered that, the next piece is very important, too. Because it often, we, we hear in most churches today, especially in Western churches, a lot about love. I call, call that sort of the comfort aspect of most of what's doing. But we never hear as much about the challenge, which I'm going to talk about next, which is the picture of, of the Holy Spirit's often a fire. And there's holiness and a hatred for sin that comes in a, in a... And that's not often talked about in the pulpit. Why? It's one that will reduce your numbers. Right? It's like John chapter 6. I love John chapter 6. I call John chapter 6 the ultimate dissolving of the mega church. It starts off in John chapter 6 with lots of feeding of the probably 11,000. There are 5,000, it says, men. And if you multiply... There's 11,000 perhaps people, maybe more. And then Jesus, after he fed people, they were quite comfortable eating the bread, you know, and the bread could be, you know, whatever we find that's good. Maybe healing, maybe it's the music, so on and so forth. But then it came time to saying, follow me as a disciple. You've got to give up certain things. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to be real here. At the end of it, there were 11. 11,000 shrunk, shrunk to 11. And Jesus looked at them and they said, are you ready to leave too? And, and there were 12 actually, but one had, well, as we know, the 12. And uh, Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. So, the, the, the hatred for sin consumes us. And again, it's a part of nature. And it's, uh, you know, when we think about, you know, how all of us are in quest. There's so many books are written about how can we live a happy life. Right? Let me give you the simple recipe in scripture. You want to know how you can live a happy life? Every day, where you can be like that cup, full of joy. You may be going through ups and downs. It doesn't mean you've got a smiling face all the time. But your spirit can be happy. Again, let's go to the owner's manual. Hebrews 1, verse 9. And if you studied um, um, you know, physics in, in high school, you remember there are certain laws, right? There are laws like Newton's law of gravity, of the force between two bodies and the gravitational force being proportional to certain things. Here's a simple law of how you can live a happy life. Read it carefully. You have loved righteousness, Hebrews 1 verse 9, and hated iniquity, 
or hated lawlessness, that sin and all of it. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So it's almost saying to the proportion of what you have hated iniquity and loved righteousness is going to be the proportion of your oil and gladness. So when I search for my life and say, Lord, why am I not happy? I go to the scripture and say, Lord, teach me to hate iniquity more. Love righteousness more. Even if my demeanor in the times where I'm sad, I could be at a funeral. There are times to be sad. Jesus wept, it said, a number of different times. But the oil of gladness filled him. It filled him. And all too often, this is not something that's, that's preached at churches because it's not popular. Do you know that in Matthew 5, there are two sins, two sins, that it talks about a straight highway to hell. Okay? The two sins. And we can look at that carefully. We're going to look at each of them. And these are serious, serious sins. One I'm going to address to men, us men. Right? Us men, we think, you know, women have the PMS. Men have got PMS. It's power, money, and sex. And this, the, the third one of those, there's a serious, serious, serious warning here. Matthew 5, verse 27 and 29. You have heard, as it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her. If your eye makes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body or do what? Go to fiery hell. Do we men take that seriously? There are giants that we wrestle with. Lust of the eyes, pornography. It's not preached to the pulpit because it's unpopular. But God wants to save us, wants to crush those giants. Let's talk about another one. This one, you sisters are not immune from this one. Matthew 5 verse 22, all of us struggle with this. Another one that can be a straight highway to hell. Matthew 5 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before a court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. If we haven't slain the giant of anger, that's another one. These are two big, big giants. But most churches want you to, don't want to, want you to address that uh, because it thins an audience. It thins a congregation. Both in our individual lives, brothers and sisters, and at the pulpit of abundant life, we are not going to shirk away from holiness. We're going to talk about righteousness, because that is the way in which we're gifted in the oil of gladness. Now, as we see this, it's very easy to feel condemned. And the one thing this does to me, and the, the, the scriptures that talk about holiness, it brings me to my knees and say, Lord, exactly what Paul said, in me lies nothing good, Romans 8. But I also hold on to the promise, Romans 6.14. That no sin shall have dominion over you. So if you are struggling with any giant, I want to give you a couple of pictures today. One of them was a book that I read as a young kid that had an incredible impact on my life. It was The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if any of you have read it. If you haven't, pick it up over the summer months and read it. And read it to your children too. It's a beautiful book. And the other is a book I read later on as an adult. Uh, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And both of these have two vivid pictures that I want to impress in your mind. If you're struggling with a giant of any sin, I've talked about two, but we can talk about many others. Okay? Grumbling, murmuring. Uh, there's many that we'll, we'll read in the, uh, that Paul talks about. In the Pilgrim's Progress, you see the story of 
uh, pilgrim and his friend, he now is called Christian, he's with Hopeful, and almost two-thirds through the book, uh, he's almost at his way at heaven. You'd think that this would be fairly easy for him to have conquered some basic sin like depression. And as you get to that point of the book, you find that he goes off stray, and he gets uh, trapped in this castle called Doubting Castle. All of the names of the uh, characters and the places in the book are allegorical. So a fantastic story, if you would, of what we face. And inside that Doubting Castle is a giant called Giant Despair. Okay? And the giant has a wife named Diffidence, which is the opposite of confidence in the Lord. So anyway, he gets trapped in there, he and his friend, and he just cannot get out. And every day, the giant comes to depress him. Comes to depress and says, listen, it's time to take your life. You're not ever going to get back to the celestial city. And he's struggling. And by the second or third day, he's about. And he looks outside the window. He sees the skeletons of a number of Christians who couldn't get past this castle. Two-thirds through the way, almost to the celestial city, and they all died. So one fine day, on the second or third day, he's on his knees uh, with his friend. Uh, and they discover inside their shirt, they have a key. And the key is called Faith. And as they open one door of the castle, it's one key that opens all doors. It opens the first door, it opens the second door, it opens the third door. And the giant gets out of his sleep with his wife, and he's trying to chase them. And the giant's knees crumble. It's a beautiful picture. I remember reading that as a kid, and it stuck with me all. So as you battle that giant, know that the, the key of faith is so much more powerful than any of the giants. And that's exactly what Joshua and Caleb saw in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. They saw these giants, the other people, the ten spies saw them and said, we're grasshoppers. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, we will slay them. We will slay them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I say to every brother. If you're battling a, a sin, if you're battling an addiction, the Lord can slay that for you. The other picture in, in the C.S. Lewis book, uh, you know, The Great Divorce is a picture of a red lizard that's hanging onto the back. Many of you probably remember that. We've talked about it this pulpit a number of times. Hanging onto the back of this person saying, listen, it's a picture of sin that's feeding you, feeding you. Some kind of, of sin that you've nurtured and nurtured and nurtured. You've fed it the passing pleasures of sin. And this lizard's got to be pretty big. And the angel comes to the man and says, listen, strip this lizard off. I can, I can completely free The lizard says, no, no, I've fed you all my life. You've got to keep feeding this. No problem. You know, you know that you and I are very good friends. Uh, we've been through this together. You never know. You can't trust this person. And finally, the man's going back and forth. He agrees with the angels. Okay, close his eyes and rip it off. And the angel comes and rips off the red lizard off his back. There's tear marks and blood on his back. And the lizard hits the, hits the ground and becomes a horse uh, that um, the man can ride away in a glory in. And that's exactly what the Lord wants to do with every one of the giants that you're struggling with, brothers and sisters. He wants to make it a horse that you can ride on. But you have to have that, we all have to have, I have to have, the hatred of sin and love for righteousness. And then he can transform. So that's the the third. And then the final one uh, that is important. Once we have dealt with the inside of our cup, right? The most important thing, we've heard a number of different times here at this pulpit, it's not what you hear on a Saturday evening or Sunday night. It's how you apply this on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday. That's where we're tested. Once we've done that, we're ready now. We're humble. We understand completely God's love. We're filled with that. We've dealt with sin and a hatred for sin and a love for holiness. Now we can build a body. And that's the ultimate place where the Spirit wants to work uh, through us. And it has to start with unity. If you remember Acts chapter 2, the most important thing uh, that we hear about before 
they all got to the point um, uh, where they could actually be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says they were all of one mind. Okay? And I can tell you that that's been our passion, our conviction as pastors and elders. For the first time, I believe, in 15 years, there is a level of spiritual unity among us pastors and elders that I've never seen in abundant life. And I praise God for that. That's a tremendous tribute to the work of God. And then we have been burdened. There's about 120 others among the five, 600 of us uh, that are in, are in various different points of ministry. They are serving volunteers, most of them volunteers. At the peak of this church, the bulk of the people who are serving were paid. And that's not the way we're going to be working. We're working in a church where we are going to have many, many volunteers who treat this as a family. And we want to love and, and to, to, to minister to those 120. We met a couple of weeks ago. And it was a time of open heaven, brothers and sisters. It was a time where I just felt the Lord was anointing 120 like he did in Acts chapter 2. And then the Lord may bring 3,000. We don't know. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. We're not about the numbers. I'd rather start with a five or 600 uh, church that's on fire for God, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to be. Rather than some mega church where we don't know where people stand. That's because the Lord will ask each of us to answer in the kingdom of God, in the, the judgment day. These people came to your church. What did you, what did you share with them? What did you stand for? Are you going to just stand for things that tickle people's ears? It says in 2 Timothy 4, in the last days you will hear messages that want to just tickle people's ears. They don't want to talk about sin. They want to talk about what makes people popular. They won't quote the scripture. They'll tell you lots of stories. We've got to get back to the found foundation of what Jesus did. And sometimes 11,000 are going to become 11, like it did in John chapter 6. But if it's 11,000 becoming 11, or 120 becoming 3,000, is what happened in Acts chapter 2. The point is not the numbers. The point is the quality rather than the quantity. And that's really what we want to be about as we think about what the Lord's doing. So I want to just share a little bit of my own story in that regard. As I um, was in my, in my home, this message, the Spiritful Church, in 1975, uh, my dad spoke a variant of this at a church and he got thrown out of the church because they didn't believe in this. They felt it was a one-time experience. And we started meeting in our home. I was a six-year-old boy, um, and four or five families started to meet there in India. Uh, and, you know, as we, my, my job was to uh, set the chairs up on a Wednesday evening at 6.30 and a 9.30 in the morning in our home with a couple of other uh, older men, and I looked forward to that. It was the building of the body. And then uh, there was nobody to play the piano, um, so my dad got me, I think I, have a, I asked the team to bring up a, a copy of the small little Casio, do we have a copy of that here? This is how I learned my piano. It looks like a little calculator. Okay? Remember this in the 1970s and 1980s? This was all you had for a piano. And I learned the piano on a small little Casio. Um, and uh, over time as I got, I just detracted a little bit and got influenced by you know, Elton John and my mom had to, to confiscate those tapes. Okay? Those, got, those got burned. But then I discovered Andre Crouch and later on in Richard Smallwood and I became influenced by gospel. In fact, I have another picture of what I was like at six years old. Can you go to the next one? That's me with my, with my uh, thick glasses. And that, that room there, so it's an old picture in the 1970s, that's probably seven there, was a room where we actually set up uh, the chairs to meet. And my um, uh, conviction has always been that the Lord can do things if we're willing to become a body. If we're becoming a body. And that's what the Lord's doing here. What's happened here for us in my own experience now in the last 10 years 
as the Lord has started something in our home group that's a growth group. I have a picture here. The third picture is a copy of the group that meets in our home. Um, there's a few people who are missing, like Ginger and um, Stephen and Pat Lamb, who weren't there the day we took this picture. But we were meeting for 10 years, and I told my wife when we got married in 2005 that, you know, having something that met in our home was going to be the saving of our family. Because our children were going to see that the saints of God were as much their brothers and sisters as their physical family, which is what I experienced. And that's what's starting to happen here, brothers and sisters, in our church. Where these small groups, it doesn't have to be just a growth group, affinity groups are beginning to understand that the body gets built not just in the context of here. Now, a year ago, that same group, the person who was in the middle of that, that picture is a wonderful man named Todd. Uh, the doorbell rang at our growth group, and Todd walks in, and he's blind. Okay? He'd heard about this, uh, uh, perhaps to draw John or Carissa, and got mapped into our growth group, and I had no idea. Uh, he walked in, and we welcomed him in. And I got to tell you, this brother puts me to shame. I'll tell you why. Here's somebody, I imagine if I was going through life blind, there's probably so many things I'd be, you know, irritable about. I've never seen him not smile. Okay? We have a couple of different members of our growth group here. I see Reuben, and they can probably attest to the same thing. And every time he speaks about the impact it's had on him, it brings tears to my eyes. Because here's somebody who won't see uh, until he sees Jesus again. Uh, perhaps. He could be healed. But if he doesn't, uh, and every time we read passages of scripture that talk about healing, I wonder what he must be thinking. Uh, he might be healed before that, but if he doesn't, he's going to be healed certainly when he sees Jesus. But he's, he is so happy in his spirit because he's found a place in that body uh, where he can be fed. So brothers and sisters, every person here has to plug in to be a body. This church is not a restaurant. Okay? You know the difference between a restaurant and a home? A restaurant's one where you don't like the food, you can go to another restaurant. Right? You don't like the chef, pick another chef. Uh, you don't like the catering, okay? and all of these are the intangibles. You didn't like the music, it wasn't as good, okay, pick another one with a bigger choir. You didn't like the preaching, go to another place where the preaching is a little better. Um, a family. Imagine if I came home and every day I put my feet up and said, okay, let's imagine what's for dinner. I leave and I didn't really like it, you know. I wouldn't have a happy home. I'm sure Kathy would, that would be the end of the meals that I have, right? But as a family, even when we have guests over, they offer to help. And this is not a plea to say all of us need to get plugged into things we're in, but out of the, 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 the passion that we feel for the Lord, we want to serve. We want to be part of this as a family. We expect this to be something where we can give back to the Lord. That is what the Lord is doing in our church, which I am extremely, extremely grateful and happy to be with. So, uh, as I close, let me just say a few things that are important. Okay? Um, we, we talked about humility being the most important thing. Okay? And I want to illustrate that. I love illustrations. I started with an illustration. I'm going to end with an illustration. And some of you have seen this before, so uh, forgive me if you've had. Can I have three volunteers here under the age of 20? Anybody under the age of 20? Come on. Okay, in spirit is okay too. Someone asked me in spirit. Anybody under the age of 20, don't feel shy. Okay, if not, I'm going to go 25, 30. I'm going to keep having to go up a little higher. Trying to get some kids involved. All right, we need three. All right, one more. Come on, come on up, three. All right, you, some of you have seen this before. I want you to hold this piece of paper. What does it say? It says zero, okay? 
It says O or a zero? Let's imagine it says a zero. All right, we got three. Tell us your name. Evan. Evan. Abraham. Abraham. Kiara. Kiara. All right, can we give a hand to these three wonderful... All right. Okay, good. Now, what do you see on those, those, those pieces of paper, everyone in the, in the congregation? Okay, good. Right? What's zero plus zero? Zero plus another zero. Okay, we're all zeros. You can multiply them. You can do anything, and those of you who know math, it's still going to be a zero. And this is what the Lord wants to make us. Right? Humble, 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 where we discovered we're a zero. Okay, come on up, Marcel. You're going to play. He's a humble man, just so you know. So he can play the role of one. And this is Jesus. Okay? He's going to... Now, the good news is on, on, on one side here, we have zeros. Okay? Kira, I'm going to ask you to move closer to our shell. What do we have as we get, look at that together? We have a beautiful picture. Now it's on our own, we're all zeros. Abraham, I want you to get a little closer. What do you have now? Come on a little closer. Now imagine I'm a zero. And on and on and on and on and on to everybody who's here, right? Now, Arshel, take this away. What happens now? We're a zero again. This is the picture of what God wants to do in us. By we being completed completely. Let's give these uh, wonderful, thank you very much, guys. Good. So don't forget that illustration. It starts, it starts, and starts with humility. It starts with humility. And then once you've understood humility, let's be rooted and grounded in God's love. It's really, really important. Before we can talk about the hatred of sin, we have to know that God loves us. He loves us. He's not condemning us when we sin. We have a hatred for sin. We're struggling with a giant. He loves us. Then we can approach the hatred of sin and the love for righteousness. And finally, uh, we can build a church. It's a true, true promise. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who are called... Everyone know the rest of that verse? According to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is the goal. Our destination, predestined means our destination. Our goal needs to be conformed to his son. So I look at it and say, you know, it's like getting into an airport and you've got a destination. Your destination could be going to New York. It could be destination could be going to Chicago. Right? You don't look at the size of the plane in terms of where you're going. You look for the destination. So I say, Lord, if it's a 737, if it's a 747, if it's a 380, if it's a turboprop, the point is it's going to the destination. Right? And that's what we want to be all about. So let's uh, bow in prayer as we reflect on this. As we pray... The most important thing I want to start off with, if there's anyone here who, like Nicodemus, has not been born again, has not given their life to Jesus, knowing that your sins are forgiven, you can be born again today. You just have to repent. Repentance is about turning around, turning around, saying, Lord, I've sinned. You can pray that sinner's prayer. If you haven't met Jesus, today could be your day. It's not gra- sure that we'll live another day. Before it's too late, brother and sister, give your life to Jesus. If you've not done that, in a little bit we're going to have an invitation. And I'd ask you to come up. Give your life to Jesus. 
Maybe some of us have given our lives to Jesus, but we're experiencing that dryness. We don't feel anointed without oil of gladness. We don't feel the rivers of overflowing water. We feel dry. We've backslidden. We've got giants that we're battling with. We've got that red lizard that's hanging on to us. We've got a sin that's addicting. And we want to come to an end of it. We want to say, Lord, on my own I can do nothing. Fill me with the Holy Spirit this morning. Don't leave this place without the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you have to set things right with somebody, do that today. Before it's too late. If you have to forgive someone, forgive them now. If you have to apologize, do it right after you leave. But make sure that the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing one that you can experience. Experience that power. Experience and you just need to ask. All it is is asking. Most of us don't ask, we never receive. Heavenly Father, I pray for every brother and sister that you've allowed to come into this sanctuary this morning. Lord, that we'd experience that true power, Lord. That true power. That our lives would never be the same. Never be the same. If we've been living defeated lives, if we've been living lives where we're unsure about whether you love us, that it can be transformed, or if it's even the basic step of giving our life to Jesus. Today, Lord, today, that we do business with you, we would set our hearts straight. You seek to redeem a remnant, Lord, in this church. We don't know how long before you come back. We see so much of the evidence of the times, persecutions, falling away, lots of things going on in the world, Lord. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, soon. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. But before you come, Lord, I pray for every single brother and sister, maybe members of our family, that they would be saved, Lord, that there'd be no person left behind that we know and love. In this church especially, Lord, that we would give our lives the only thing that matters, being conformed to your image. Bless every brother and sister here. In Jesus' name, amen.